Escaped Sapiens. Over the past 200 years, Australia has seen the extinction of about as many mammal species as the rest of the world combined. While for many remaining species, the situation appears pretty grim. In this episode of the Escape Sapiens podcast, I speak with Catherine Mosby to find out why. Catherine is a researcher based at the University of New South Wales in Sydney, who specializes in arid zone ecology and the reintroduction of endangered species. We discuss the devastation that has been done to native species by loss of habitat and the introduction of invasive animals, as well as the extraordinary work being done by Catherine and her colleagues to claw back some of the biodiversity that Australia once had. Right now, we have insurance populations of certain species kept on islands and behind electrified predator-proof fences, but this can't be a permanent solution. So how do we go beyond the fence? Perhaps via an eradication program in which we remove all the feral foxes, cats, and rabbits by trapping, viruses, gene drives, and poison-shooting autonomous guard robot sentries. Or perhaps there is a gentler approach in which native species can be trained to coexist through controlled exposure. This was a fascinating conversation. I hope you enjoy. As as an ecologist or or a conservationist working in desert ecology, what is it that attracts you specifically to desert ecology? Is is there something uh, special about uh, those environments that that sort of draws you, or is it just that those are the environments that most need our help? I think a couple of things. I'd never been to the desert until I was probably around 19 and I went on a, a field trip at uni and I was just blown away by the, the open space and the big skies and the lack of people and I think that's uh, probably been one of the attractions, just get the whole place to yourself and you can see for miles, you're not, not shut in. I've done a bit of forest ecology and a bit of um, rainforest work and I just feel really sort of claustrophobic and, and closed in in those really sort of wet human environments. So I really like the warm weather and the open skies and and the country is just amazing. I mean, desert country just changes all the time. It's, it's, it's never the same. You can go out and you might have had huge rains and, you know, everything's just booming or you go out in the worst drought in 20 years and there's still life out there, but it's just hanging in there by, you know, by its toenails. So it's, yeah, it's just really interesting country. Are you able to actually see that dynamic where, where what's, how how does the rich environment compare to when it's completely dry? You know, do new species come in or do they just pop up out of the ground? What's, what's the differences that you see there? Well, it's real boom and bust so that the species that are still hanging in there in the droughts, they just boom. So they just breed mm-hmm. up into huge numbers and disperse all across the arid zone. But then you have all the all the other species that come in just when it rains, like a lot of the budgies and the birds and things like that. They just, they just move in after the rain. So they're not there all the time. And as soon as it dries up, they leave. But then you've got those real hardy desert dwellers that just... You know, they just hang on in their burrows. I mean, we've got burrowing frogs that can sit there for years and they're just waiting mm-hmm. for the rain. And in, in many cases, they're the most common vertebrate in, in the system, in a desert system. Mm-hmm. And they just mm-hmm. wait there until it rains and then they, they dig up through the sand and the mud and, and emerge and breed. So, you know, it's so varied and so responsive to, to rainfall in desert areas. So if I'm trying to imagine these areas, it's not the de- just the sand and spin effects. There's actually quite a lot of life out there uh, to be had. Yeah, well, I think a lot of animals are nocturnal. So we have a lot of lizards. Australia's got a really high lizard diversity in arid zones. So if you're not into lizards, people just think, oh, there's nothing out here. 
But in actual fact, um, even our mammal diversity used to be really high. But I mean, we've lost mm -hmm. so many mammal species. In some places, 60% of our mammal species have gone since European mm -hmm. settlement. So the deserts used to have a, lo a lot larger mammal component to them. But now they're, they're still very highly diverse with reptiles and, and birds as well. But again, a lot of them come and go with the rains. But mammals in particular have really, have really suffered. So there's not nearly as many mammal species as there used to be. And where, where's the major impact coming from? It's, it's introduced species, right, rather than climate change in this case. At, this, at, the, at the present moment, yeah, the last 200 years have been, we bought, we bought sheep and cattle in and a lot of the rangelands mm -hmm. or these desert areas, they're very fragile. So if you, if you put a whole lot of sheep and cattle on them during a wet year, they can probably sustain that quite well. But then when it dries off and everything's just sort of sitting there waiting for the next rain, the sheep and cattle can do a lot of damage with their hard hooves and, and just eating all that refuge habitat that these animals are sort of eking out their existence in. So then you, you add to that things like rabbits that got introduced and they're eating out a lot of the food. And then on top of that, you've got cats and foxes that were introduced as well. So all of those exotic species that were brought in either as, as uh, farming uh, animals or as, as just ferals um, have really created a huge impact. So, so why is it that um, cats and foxes and these sort of things are so, why do they deal so well with the Australian environment when they're not evolved for these? You know, how, how is it that they outcompete a local species that's been evolved to deal with uh, the Australian environment? Well, I think that, um, I mean, our top order predator was the dingo and that got mm -hmm. sort of basically exterminated in a lot of places by Europeans because of the predation on the sheep and cattle. And, um, you know, we used, and we used to have a whole lot of other predators that also were smaller, so they got taken out by the cats and foxes as well. But cats and foxes actually really adapted to a whole range of conditions. So you look at where they've come from and, and they've really, cats in particular, are very well adapted to living without water. Um, they can prey on a really wide range of, of animals. Um, they can go underground and, and live in warrens that other animals use to get away from the heat. Uh, they're amazing predators, very good ambush predators, and they actually are quite well adapted to, to arid zone conditions, unfortunately, mm -hmm. for Australia. Okay. And, I guess, yeah, where did they foxes. originally come from? Persia? Or they were originally uh, from well, Persia or something? So. There's, there's cats in Africa, there's cats in Europe, yeah. there's native cats, you know, all over mm -hmm. the place. In, um, there's even native cats in Russia, mm -hmm. you know, but... There's uh, cats have really right. adapted all across the world. Most continents have got a native cat. We don't have a native mm -hmm. cat, um, but we've certainly got a lot of other native predators. The quolls, for example, they're, they're called native cats in some places in Australia, but mm -hmm. they're marsupial, so they're not a cat. Um, mm -hmm. But they're a similar type of predator, um, but they're smaller mm -hmm. than, a, than a domestic cat. So unfortunately, the cats mm -hmm. were able to, to um, yeah, have a huge impact on them as well when they came to Australia. I guess the reason why I was curious is I imagined that the majority of the introduced species would have been coming from Europe. So they would have been sort of set up to deal with the European environment. But uh, I guess that's not the case, right? They're, they're just a much more broadly suited to, uh, to, to a range of environments. But yeah, well, you look at the... That, you, um, you look, sorry, I was going to say, you look at the red fox and that's, uh, that's native to Israel. I mean, Israel's got some of the harshest deserts in the world. So, you know, these are animals that are pretty pretty well adapted to a range of conditions i didn't realize they were from there but one one thing that i'm a bit curious about so i understand why why cats are more damaging than than what we have 
locally or as an indigenous predators. But in terms of the fox, you would imagine that they would be pre pretty comparable to a dingo. Uh, is that not the case? Dingoes tend to be sight predators. So they'll wander around and they're looking for prey and they're tending to go for sort of larger prey. So they're looking for, you know, small mm -hmm. kangaroos, uh, you know, large goannas, that, that kind of thing. Whereas a fox is a, it's a visual predator, but it's, it's, it uses its, um, uses scent a lot. So it's got a really highly sophisticated sense of smell and it can really sniff out where animals are and it learns very quickly, you know, where they are in the environment and it can keep going back there. And it's just, um, it's just a really smart predator. I mean, dingoes, I'm not saying dingoes aren't smart, but the way they hunt in, in packs and very visually, they tend to miss a lot of those smaller animals that can sort of hide mm -hmm. from them if they can't be seen. Mm -hmm. but, but something like a fox, even if a fox can't see you, it will, it will sniff you out. I see. And uh, dingoes are also targeting larger species, such as big kangaroos, uh, more often. Oh, or? Yeah, they. I mean, they they will eat rodents and smaller animals, but in general, they prefer their preferred food is is larger. So those sort of small kangaroos and large goannas and rabbits and and that sort of thing. Whereas foxes and cats, being smaller than dingoes, they're they're very good at eating rodents and and sort of those bandicoot sized species that uh, mm. you know can are pretty cryptic and can probably stay stay pretty keep pretty low and keep away from a dingo but when you've got a cat and a fox that's a, a different type of predator you've got a stalking predator and you've got a a predator with a really good sense of smell then it, it makes it a lot harder to evade them so it's the combination coming sort of all at the same time that's really doing in the uh, native native species then yeah and one of the other things that happened around the same time that cats and foxes were introduced is that rabbits were just running rampant mm -hmm. through australia and so cats and foxes both prey on rabbits and, and it's one of their preferred mm -hmm. foods. So they were able to cross the continent with the rabbit and maintain mm -hmm. really high densities because the rabbit was in high densities. And at the same time, they're picking off all the native animals, which have a lower breeding rate, not, haven't evolved mm -hmm. with cats and foxes, don't have the same level of awareness of those species and, yeah, just ended up with disaster. And by the 1930s in most of our South Australia, at least, or those small mammals, we call them the critical weight range mammals. So anything from 35 grams to five and a half kilograms were pretty much gone from that part of the world. Mm -hmm. So how, how, how widespread uh, is the coverage then of, of rabbits, foxes and, and cats? Is, is there any area that's completely untouched or so I mean, cats apart from are found, islands? Well, cat, cats are found in every, part, every, every habitat in Australia. Cats are. Really? So cats okay. are very widespread. But uh, rabbits and foxes do have a limit to their northern distribution. They don't tend to like the tropics. So as you get right up into tropical northern Australia, you don't tend to get foxes and you don't tend to get rabbits. So we still have quite a lot of our fauna in those northern areas of Australia, although there are high numbers of, mm -hmm. of cats up there and that's causing issues as well. Mm -hmm. So so you mentioned, you said 60 or 40% of, of uh, species, mammalian species have been removed from, from these areas. Is that, what, what's the extent of the damage? Yeah, so the arid areas that I work, um, we've lost about 60% of our mammal species. So that's things like mm -hmm. pig-footed bandicoots, bilbies, um, brush-tailed betong, stick-nest rats, um, you know, a whole lot of small wallabies and a whole lot of large rodents. Um, yeah, basically that whole suite of mammals has just gone from the environment. So um, mm -hmm. 
completely disappeared. So what we're left with is the big things like kangaroos. Everyone's familiar with kangaroos in Australia, the red kangaroo. Um, and we've got lots of small things. So small rodents and small marsupials, which are like carnivorous desurids, which are, you know, they have a pouch and they and they feed on invertebrates and, and that sort of thing. But that's what we've got left. So we're missing a whole lot of those those things in between. And of course, it's not just the animal that you're missing, it's what it used to do in the environment. So a lot of these animals, they were seed dispersers, they were burrowers, they were they turned the soil over, they increased the soil carbon, you know, they increased seed germination, they were food for other animals, you know, all that sort of that those functions all that good stuff yeah they all disappeared with them so that sort of created even more problems that's something i was actually curious about asking about um so i i I imagine also that eating if you remove a native species that was um eating some sort of plant are you seeing explosions in certain plants and other plants that are just disappearing from the environment completely yeah but i see it I think that the biggest impact has been because of the cats and because the the sheep and cattle graze a lot of these arid mm-hmm. lands okay. now. We're seeing a lot more vegetation changes from them being there, so their selection. So plants that they prefer are declining, and plants that they don't eat are increasing. So that seems to be having a more overwhelming effect than than those small animals. Although they mm-hmm. there is studies to show that the distribution of some seeds is lower now without having those animals in the in the system. So there certainly are some changes, but I mean we've seen massive vegetation changes from from domestic stock. So it's hard to tease it out mm-hmm. sometimes. Are the native species better able to deal with fire and, and those sorts of threats after a big event like we had in the last year? Do you see? Uh, native species rebounding quicker than the invasive or what's the story there? Yeah, so fire doesn't affect all of our deserts. Fire affects a lot of deserts that have what we call spinifex, which is a really spiky Mm -hmm. grass. And it's a really great shelter site for a whole lot of mammals and reptiles a because it's uh it you know it tempers the the heat and the cold and also because it's very hard for predators to get into it because it's just like a porcupine it's being stabbed with little tiny needles (laughs) to get in there so some of our you know most threatened species like our like our night parrot still surviving in areas with big clumps of this trodia because predators find it really difficult to get in there. So in those areas, fire is really important and, and you need a fire mm-hmm. to, to regenerate that trodia. But in a lot of other areas in our arid zone, it's not really affected by fire. So it would be more dr- drought and rainfall that, that has those major influences on those systems. But fire certainly in a lot of Australia where the trodia is is very important. And we and obviously those animals are very well adapted to fire. And you see different animals coming in early on after fire and then and then other species coming in mid succession and then you get the later succession species. So yeah, it's uh it's it's all very much co evolved, definitely. Mm-hmm. So in that case, do you see big impacts on the introduced species after a fire? Is, is that something in some sense good for the, for the native species? They, unfortunately, they seem pretty adaptable as well. So you've even, got, cat, you've even got cats knowing when, when animals are responding after the fire and moving into fire grounds at certain times because they know there's going to be, you know, rodents there and, and that sort of thing. So, yeah, we don't – unfortunately, the, the predators that we have – the introduced predators like the cats and foxes they're very adaptable themselves so they're you know they seem to be 
fine coping with with those and even with droughts i mean they decline as well like the native species but they bounce back very quickly after droughts as well that's what makes after them such great years. invasive species they're just they're just <laughs> i mean you've got to you've got to give them a lot of respect i mean cats and foxes are pretty amazing animals they're they're mm. very smart very adaptable um they're just the perfect hunters really and in other environments where they're endangered, I, I suppose you'd be trying to protect them. But here, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, it's interesting. In Spain, the the European rabbit is doing really badly because of um, you know Khaleesi virus and things like that. Whereas over here, we're we're introducing those viruses to try and control the rabbit. So the rabbit in Australia is is doing extremely well, and um, and over in Spain they're reintroducing them. So it's 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 pretty incredible, really. Was that an accidental release or was that a natural uh, occurrence? Of the Khaleesi virus? Yeah, in, in Spain. Oh, I think that was a, that escaped from some rabbit farms, I think. I don't think that was a, uh, <laughs> uh, I don't think that was on purpose. But in Australia, we, we brought the virus over and we were doing um, research on it to see if we could use it as a biocontrol over here. And it mm. actually escaped off an island onto the mainland yeah. and spread through Australia like wildfire and reduced the population by, you know, in some places up to 99%. So it was very effective, but it was a bit of a uh, <laughs> uproar at the time because it escaped off this island and at the time no mm -hmm. one could work out how it escaped and then they found out it's carried by flies and other insects. So, Oh, um, I didn't know that. They, okay. they managed to get off the island and, and uh, infect the rabbits on the mainland. So it was a little bit of uh, embarrassment for, for your field, I suppose, uh, at that time. Yeah, well, I guess after the issues we had with the cane toad in Australia, so we, we mm -hmm. introduced the cane toad to try and control the cane beetle. And, of course, the cane toad is now one of our biggest pests in Australia. So mm -hmm. I think people are very wary about introducing biocontrol agents to Australia with good reason. So, yeah, it could have been mm -hmm. a disaster, but it was actually fantastic. So th there's no species jumping or anything like that with the Khaleesi virus? No, there's been no evidence of that whatsoever. And they've since, they've, since that first virus came out in about 995, they've now introduced uh, new, new strains of it and we still have really good knockdown. And, and the amazing response was the vegetation. I mean, we had, we had Arizona trees that some of these trees can live for 800, 900 years. I mean, we're talking about things like Western mile trees and even our pine trees can live for hundreds of years. And we had recruitment events that we hadn't seen for years, like for decades. So it was, uh, it was, a, it was a great success in the Arizona to allow those long-lived trees to actually get some recruitment through. So, yeah, it was, it was an amazing experience to see that. When you when you have a round of recruitment like that, do, it, does it then become stable after a year or two, where where the plants are now big enough to survive uh, on their own uh, against uh, predation from rabbits? Yeah, some of them have, but then we also have had one of the worst droughts in living memory in the last three years as well. So that's taken its toll on on some of those um, plants. But um, mm -hmm. but yeah, once they can get that that height, uh, as long as they can then not get browsed by cattle or sheep or I mean, we have so many feral species in Australia. We have camels, mm -hmm. we have donkeys, uh, you know, we've got everything. So it, they're really up against it. But if they can get above a couple of metres height, then, yeah, they're usually away. In terms of the uh, Khaleesi virus, that's not the only virus. Right? We've, so you said we've released a whole uh, range of viruses. Where, where do these come from? Is it natural or are we engineering these viruses? What, what, what's the story there? 
Well, I'm not an expert on Khaleesi virus, but I'm pretty sure it came from Asia and it was it was found, I think it originated in Russia or somewhere in Asia, and it, it got into the rabbit farms in Europe and decimated the rabbit farms. And, and Australia just saw, saw an opportunity to harness this this disease that was that was really you know infectious and and knocking down a whole lot of the European rabbits, which is the same genetic strain that we have, um, and jumped on it. And um, yeah, this amazing work by Brian Cook and and some of his uh, fellow researchers that actually managed to get it through and get the permissions to do it. So it's it it really was a pretty historical moment. We we did some research and we showed that. Um, Due to that Khaleesi virus, what what happened, as well as the rabbits declining by ninety eight percent, the cats and foxes that really rely on the rabbit to to keep their populations high, they declined by huge numbers as well. And so we saw this amazing recovery of threatened species that that were still alive in the arid zone. Some of them increasing their their distribution by seventy times. So really, it's wow. been the most significant sort of uh, action that we've been able to do for threatened species in probably in, in the Arizona in, in the last 200 years. So that was from releasing a virus without actually killing a cat or a fox, like physically. I mean, obviously a lot of yeah. them died because the rabbit numbers declined. But, yeah, it was it was an amazing recovery for a lot of our threatened species in the Arizona. So when, when the rabbit population uh, drops, is there not some uh, prey switching where you know, cats suddenly have to eat only uh, native species and then there's a sudden die-off? Or is it, is it really that, um, that you only see positive effects in this regard? There certainly has been some recorded instances of prey switching. So some populations of rock wallaby we lost around that time um, that the Khaleesi virus came through mm. and there has been some records. But I think it wasn't the catastrophic prey switching that everybody thought might happen. And the 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 benefits have certainly outweighed those those risks. And I think, yes, there has been some risks and we didn't have time to prepare. So originally when they were going to do the release, um, they were going to do cat and fox control at the same time to, to alleviate the, the risk of, doing prey, of having prey switching. But because it escaped from the island, they didn't have that opportunity. So it was sort of everyone was sort of scrambling to, oh, you know, what are we going to do now sort of thing. But we didn't, we, we certainly didn't see the catastrophic prey switching that I think some people were worried about and certainly in over the next couple of decades the the that increase in plant recruitment and that increase in distribution and abundance of those native mammals in the arid zone at least have been have been remarkable and Khaleesi virus works a lot better in the arid zone than than in the wetter areas so that's really been where it's it's come into its uh to into its own so is that the key then? Rather than targeting uh, cats and foxes and, and the predators, should we be focusing in on the uh, rabbits specifically? Is is uh, are we planning to just continuously release viruses? What's what's the status there? Yeah, I think they're always looking for the next rabbit control because rabbits don't also don't only affect obviously our native animals; they affect agriculture. So there's a there's a big um, push from an agricultural perspective as well to, to control rabbits. Mm. So there's funding there to look for these things and look for these viruses. Uh, but definitely controlling rabbits has a huge effect on cats and foxes. Not only do they reduce the number, but they also make cats a lot more susceptible to other control methods. So if we're trying to put poison baits mm -hmm. out for feral cats, if there's rabbits around, the cats just, the, the uptake is really low. So you really want to either 
target areas where there aren't any rabbits or turn your prey, or you need to reduce those down before you bait. Otherwise, baiting can be can be very ineffective for feral cats um, because of that. I, I see. So, so, so when when there's not much food around and you put baits out, the cats jump on it. Whereas otherwise, they've got alternatives and it just is not so effective. That's right. So, so foxes are different. Foxes are more like a scavenger. So, if you put baits out, even if there's mm. lots of food around, they really no can't help. They can't help themselves. You know, a piece of nice juicy meat bait there. They, they, they want, they want it. But cats, they, they like live prey. They like hunting. They like their visual. You know, they mm. want to, they want to see the prey. They want to hear the prey. They want to jump on it. And if you throw a piece of meat out on the ground, they'll walk up to it and sniff it and look at it and turn their nose up and, and walk away. I mean, anyone that owns a cat knows mm. how fussy cats can be. So. I'm not mm-hmm. saying they never take a bait, but it's a lot harder to get cats to take baits when there's lots of you know, juicy rabbits running around that they can eat. So certainly controlling the rabbits or controlling cats in areas where there aren't rabbits uh, is, is much more effective. Is there, uh, is there some sort of behavior that cats exhibit that make them more susceptible to different uh, methods other than uh, just baiting, for example? Yeah, well, that's interesting. So my partner's been designing something called a grooming trap, which is a a trap Mm -hmm. that sprays poison onto the cat's fur as it walks past. And they're compulsive groomers. So they go away and they they lick lick their fur because they don't like being dirty and they ingest the poison that way. And that's been found to be a really effective way of, of, of... of getting feral cats to take poison baits is is actually spraying it onto their fur. So, um, you know, we are developing these sort of sentinels that that they can detect the shape of a cat and they can differentiate that from other species and only spray the poison onto a cat's fur. And we're lucky in Australia. I mean, 1080 is is sort of a, a fluoroacetate poison that that is very similar to a compound that's found in plants naturally in Australia. So our native animals have got a, a high tolerance, particularly in the in the central and western parts of Australia where these plants are really common. And so if you put a poison bait out with 1080 in it, it has a very low risk of affecting a native animal. The eastern states is a bit different. They don't have so many of these plants, so the animals mm-hmm. there are more susceptible. But in the, in the arid zone in the west, um, they, they have a high tolerance. So a cat or a fox will eat the bait and, and die. They have a much, lower, much higher sensitivity to it. But native animals uh, can ingest the bait and, and they're fine. So, um, yeah, so, that, so we're, we're lucky that we do have a sort of a, a, a silver bullet in that we can use baiting. And baiting's been used very effectively for foxes to try and reintroduce some of these threatened species back to areas of Australia. And, you know, some of our most successful reintroductions have occurred because we can bait foxes um and 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 you know and reduce cats with poisoning and things like that so um western australia has done a lot of work in that regard and they they put poison baits out over thousands of square kilometers um to reduce fox Mm -hmm. numbers down to levels so they can get you know betongs and bandicoots and and western quolls Mm -hmm. and all those animals back in the system and they do they do an amazing job um getting it Mm. to work how did your partner think of the grooming trap? Are, are you trying all different methods and there's lots of failures that you're not showing us? So, I mean, that's kind of genius. <laughs> it's I evil think, genius in some, for the cats, well, but it's, it's pretty I mean, brilliant. We've both, we've both been studying feral cats for over 20 years, probably nearly 30 years now. So you, mm-hmm. you get to know a lot about cats. I mean, we're also looking at another method. It's a microchip, but the microchip is filled with poison and you put it under the mm-hmm. skin of the prey animals 
And so if they're ingested by a cat, the cat, it will break down in the cat's stomach and release the poison. And if they're not ingested mm-hmm. by a cat, it just sits there, you know, under the skin, you know, for the life of, of the animal. And, um, you know, that, that works really well because of the, the research we've shown is that a lot of cats are not actually killing these threatened species. A lot of these threatened species are really mm-hmm. almost on the upper size limit for cats. So they're almost too big for a cat to eat. So really it's only the big male cats that are taking out these species. These species are around the one to two kilo mark. Anything small, any cat will eat, but something around one, one and a half, two kilos, it's really the big cats that are taking them. And they might only make up, you know, 10, 20% of the population. So if you can, if you can protect the prey so that as soon as one of these big cats takes a prey, it's out of the equation. Um, it's a lot more efficient than just trying to bait every single cat and control and trap and shoot every single cat in the area. So we've been doing some trials with it um, and getting some, I mean, it's still obviously very early in early stage research, but certainly finding that those big cats are responsible for multiple killings. So once they kill one, mm-hmm. they learn how to hunt that that difficult prey and then they'll just start escalating and and this builds on a lot of work that people have done looking at the fact that in many cases when they reintroduce something like, um, you know, a marler or which is a type of hair wallaby, um, they thought that the whole reintroduction failed but due to just one or two individual cats, which it sounds incredible mm-hmm. to believe that one or two individual cats could be responsible for reintroduction failure. But it's been shown in many instances. And so, um, and we showed that with Western quolls that really it was very few cats that were doing the damage. So this microchip, this sort of poison implant, um, is one way to try and you know protect that population by just targeting the cats that need to be targeted. So yeah, we are coming up with lots of methods. They don't all work, but um, you know people are looking at a whole range of things. They're looking at trying to lure cats in using you know mating calls, uh, female pheromones. I mean, you know, people try everything, but um, but that's how you. That's how you find solutions. You just keep trying and just try and think outside the box and try different things. And, and that's part of that research that we're doing up at Roxby where we're putting cats in with native animals, which seems ridiculous, but it's our way of trying to accelerate natural selection. So these animals haven't co-evolved with cats. They don't recognise cats as predators. They don't know what to do. So if we can expose them to cats at low densities so the cats don't... Um, cause population extinction but they're interacting with these prey and some of the prey Mm. will get killed by the cats and some of the prey will learn and hopefully that those learnings will be passed on to the next generation and over time hopefully we'll see some some natural selection occur that that will help these animals coexist with cats in the future I want to ask you about that work in a second, but I'm I'm curious. Can I run back to something you yeah. said before? Um, so, with with regards to putting these uh, poison chips in in uh, prey species, the native species, is this something that can be scaled up? I mean, I imagine you have to go out and catch these animals, and then you know individually uh, go through the process of, of uh, implanting one of these. Chips. Is is that is that something that's really difficult to do or something that takes a lot of how, – how good are you catching these, these so uh, that, animals now? That's a, that's a good question. And so we've been doing modelling to see well, what proportion of the population would we have to implant for it to actually make any difference. And it's actually not as high as you might think. So really, if you could get 10 or 20% of the population, you start to see significant population increases. And we're talking about threatened species that are in you know pretty small – 
uh, like they're in fragmented areas now. There's not very many of them and they're quite highly monitored, a lot of these populations as well, where people are going out every mm-hmm. year or a couple of years and trapping and doing population estimates. So it's not going to work on a massive scale, but certainly for, for those small isolated populations or for reintroductions because you lose a lot of animals in the first few months with reintroductions often. So, you know, mm-hmm. just getting things started, giving things a bit of a boost, um, we think it will have, you know, good applicability there. But obviously, yeah, you can't do it over, over huge populations and, and, and big areas. And that's where you've got to think of other, other ways to facilitate coexistence. In terms of the behavior of the uh, predator species, do you see uh, not only that the cats are dying from these poisons, but that the, there's a behavior change when you, you know, do they stop targeting um, do they communicate with each other and stop targeting these, these species or, or is there any effect there or is it just just solely there are individuals that are that are that have learned individually and, and they're taken out of the system that's a really interesting question and one that we haven't so we're still we're still doing the chemistry because you've got to design a microchip that's inert under the skin but uh, mm-hmm. the, the outer core breaks down in acidic environment in the stomach. And trying to find something that's stable under the skin but breaks down in acid is actually not as easy as, as you might think. So the, the chemistry is quite difficult. We've done pen trials, so we know that, that it does work. We know cats will, take, will, will ingest the microchips and they will consume them and that does cause their death. But we haven't done uh, you know, full-scale fuel trials yet. So it'll be, that would be an interesting question to look at. My, my feeling is that cats aren't very social animals, so they won't learn from each other. They'll just individually mm-hmm. eat the prey and die. But if you had a more social predator, then that is definitely something that could happen. But, yeah, that's not, a, it's not really uh, how cats operate, particularly in arid yeah. areas where they've got yeah. massive home ranges. The reason why I ask is I'm imagining that if you do have a social predator that does transmit information about which species is good to target and which is not, then this might be something that would upscale uh, more easily. Uh, whereas, unfortunately, if they just if it's just very local where just one animal gets mm-hmm. killed, then that makes it a bit harder. I it suppose. does. And it probably works better in longer lived animals too. So if you have prey that have a sort of a lifespan of 10 years, then you've got more chance of... Uh, protecting mm. that population rather than a short-lived animal that you might have to go and implant every 12 to 18 months to, to get that benefit. So certainly going to be some species that are that are better than others. But there are researchers in Australia looking at taste aversion as well. So whether mm. they can do something like that where the predators remain in the environment but they they don't target the threatened species because of, because of taste aversion. And we've done a bit of that work. Um, but it's very difficult, um, and animals really only learn if they if they almost have a near death experience with with that sort of thing. So okay. it has to be something fairly horrible tasting that almost induces vomiting mm. and you know really quite severe symptoms. So, but certainly some work's happening in that space. Colleagues of mine are doing some work like that in Australia. When did we? So I guess if you go back uh, to when rabbits and cats and foxes first started coming in, you know, we were merrily introducing birds and all sorts of things uh, to Europeanize, I guess, our environment. Um, when did we have that whoops moment <laughs> where we started to realize that actually something needs to be done? Like when, when, when were eradication methods first kicked on, into effect? I, I think it was the rabbit because the rabbit went horribly wrong 
you know, quite quickly. They had a lot of yeah. trouble establishing rabbits. Um, they had to build pens. Really? They kept getting eaten by native predators. They get, got eaten by quolls. They got eaten by birds of prey. They really struggled to get rabbits established. They had to build little pens and keep them in there and, and you know, but once they got established, they just went like wildfire. And the, 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 the plagues of rabbits that, they, that you see photos of and, and you hear reports of were absolutely, I mean, we're talking millions and millions of rabbits. They built fences to try and stop them. They, they erected mm. netting fences and then they'd get over the fences. I mean, in some cases, the rabbits piled up onto the fences you know, a metre high, and then other rabbits just jumped over the top of them. There was that many of them. And then they'd build another fence and another fence. They they realised pretty quickly with the rabbit that, that this was, I mean, they had bounties. They were actually releasing cats to try and, they, they had um, advertisements in newspapers asking for people to provide cats so oh. they could release them on their farms to control the rabbits. I mean, you know, it was incredible. Was that so, working? No. No, I think that just added, you know, then we had another predator in the system which added more problems. So, um, but, you know, this this is, I think rabbits was really the, uh, certainly the big oops moment there. And, and I think if everyone could have turned back yeah. time and reversed that, that would have, because in areas where there aren't rabbits, there's still quite a few places where, like if you, if you think about Kangaroo Island, for example, in mm. South Australia, there's no rabbits on Kangaroo Island. So there's feral cats there. There's no foxes. But there's still a lot of native wildlife on Kangaroo Island and that's possibly mm-hmm. because those rabbits are not elevating the cat numbers. So the cats are a bit mm-hmm. more in sync with the native prey. So, you know, rabbits, the combination of rabbits and cats and then foxes on top of that is just such a lethal combination mm-hmm. for our native species. In terms of being in, in sync, is so in the arid environments that you're specifically dealing with where we've seen huge loss of uh, native species, are the environments now in sort of a, a new new equilibrium where we're not likely to see further um, extinctions, or is it really just catastrophic where these environments are just continuing uh, in their downward spiral? What's what, what's the story there? Yeah, well, we've lost so many, so I think that's the first point to make is that there's not that much left to lose, if that makes sense. But we still have got species mm. that are declining. I mean, the kawari is one example. It's mm. a it's sort of the size of your hand, a marsupial carnivore, and they've just done modelling to show it's predicted to go extinct, you know, in the next 20 or 30 years if we, if we don't do anything about mm-hmm. it. So we're still seeing land degradation. And now on top of that, we've got climate change. So we're seeing some of the more mm-hmm. like heat waves that we've never seen before. I mean, the, the length of heat waves, the intensity of heat waves, the duration, every, uh, you know, it's all increasing. Um, and, you know, I've, I've just been looking at graphs in the Arizona and, and we're regularly getting temperatures of 48, 49 you know, degrees Celsius, mm. 50 degrees Celsius. And that was very unusual 20, 30 years ago. So, um, I mean, Alice Springs is getting something like 30 more days a year over 35 than it had, you know, 30 or 40 years ago. So we're just seeing this huge increase in, in temperatures, which obviously is, is removing more moisture from the soil, causing, you know, more long-term plant death, um, the last bad drought we had, which was only really in the last few years, caused huge, huge shrub death in the arid lands. And then you, you add that severe mm-hmm. temperatures and we see a lot of um, declines. The stick nest rat is a little rodent. It's about this big and uh, about the size of a baby rabbit. And it builds nests out of sticks and they can be you know one and a half metres high, two metres wide. 
I think the equivalent in America might be the pack rat or something like that. Um, or the beaver. Or the beaver, yeah, <laughs> something like that. And they're, they're amazing. They, they build these nests on their own and they chew these sticks up into little, little bits and build these very hard. I mean, the only way you can get into these nests, the Aboriginals used to light them up and burn them to get the rats out to eat them because they're very, you can't just pull them apart. They're, they're very tightly woven. They're, they're incredibly intricate. But really? uh, we've reintroduced them up at Arid Recovery in, in South Australia. Is it just weaving or are they, is, is, are they adding some sort of adhesive? It's just weaving and that's the, all the, it needs the, to... The top parts are woven, but they, they produce a copious amount of really concentrated urine because the way they, they work in the arid zone, they have to eat succulent plants and they've got a very kind of um, concentrated urine and that sticks the bottom bit together really well. But the top bit is just interwoven basically from them um, just being pretty damn good at it but we've reintroduced them and we thought we'll get rid of the cats and foxes and these stick nest rats will be fine because that that's their major problem but we've seen huge catastrophic declines in the last few years from from drought and extreme temperatures so when it's really hot when it's 48 49 degrees that's ambient i mean you're talking in the sun will be a good what 20 degrees hotter than that and these animals are having to go and find underground shelters. They're having to go and go down a bilby burrow or a betong burrow just to get away from the heat. And a lot of them... Or a rabbit burrow. <laughs> or a rabbit burrow, that's right. So it's, um, it, it's really causing a lot of problems to try and keep these populations alive in arid areas because of these temperature extremes. So you think that you've got on top of the problems and then climate changes has come along and whacked you on the head and said, well, cop that, here's another one. So it's, uh, you know, things like the mountain pygmy possum in Australia, it's going to run out of snow. It's, uh, it's, mm-hmm. it's going to be a, 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 an extinction, a climate change extinction. I mean, we've already had our first climate change extinction in Australia with the, the bramble uh, key malomies, which uh, went extinct uh, last year or the year before from, from rising sea levels. So, you know, it's... it's, it's so what happened there? Yeah, was, their breeding grounds became... Well, they were only found on one small island and um, mm-hmm. the rising tides and sea levels sort of ruined the habitat and they and they went extinct. But that that's the first of... There will be another whole round of climate change extinctions. And so when you were saying what's what's left, you know, to be threatened, well, that's that's the next... Mm-hmm. That's the next extinction wave, which there's not much left, but what is left will... Climate change will... will have a good hard go at finishing it off, I think. So what's happening with that uh, spe- the mouse species that uh, is threatened, their snow environments, uh, they're melting? What, what's that, happening that's the that mountain, you previously mentioned? That's the mountain pygmy possum. So I'm not an expert on the mountain pygmy possum, but there's a lot of people working on that because obviously we don't have a lot of mountains in Australia. So we only have a few uh, areas that get snow in the winter and yeah, they're getting less and less snow and, and the snow line is, you know, is getting up higher and higher and these animals are going to struggle. So they're looking at having to do sort of translocations between sites to try and, um, you know, improve the genetics because they're not connected anymore and all those sort of things. So they, there's a lot of issues happening uh, because of climate change already in those environments. And arid zone, mm-hmm. the main climate change issues in Arizona are, are the increasing drought and the increasing temperature extremes, particularly summer temperatures where you can get 10 days in a row over 45 degrees. So it's just extreme. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Can, can I ask uh, if we jump back to uh, the rabbit introductions again, something you mentioned sort of caught my attention. What 
you mentioned that it was difficult to get uh, rabbits established early on. What changed? Was there a behavior change? Was there a morphology change? Was it just numbers that uh, helped them eventually kick off? Or um, as in the, the density became high enough that they just outcompeted the predators? What, what, what happened there? Do you, do you know? Yeah, I'm not sure, actually. I'm not, a, I'm not an expert on that. But um, there's certainly been lots of books written about the rabbit in Australia. It's a, it's a very popular topic. Um, I think probably they just kept trying and kept trying and got that, that numbers up to a certain level that they could then establish on their own. But it was, it was yeah, it was an effort for, for sure. And it does make you realise that when we do reintroductions and we put sort of 30 animals out there that, and expect them to suddenly turn into a, a thriving population again. It's mm-hmm. probably a little bit naive. We really might be looking at 300, 400, 500 animals that we need to, to use as, as founding animals. Unfortunately, a lot of our threat species, we just don't have those numbers available to, to provide for source populations. Mm-hmm. So some of these animals, they're only just hanging on on a few couple of islands off the, off the coast or there's a captive breeding colonies mm-hmm. of them and... Yeah, so we're just we're not lucky enough to have large numbers to do these sorts of experiments with. Mm-hmm. So that's that seems to indicate that um, having pet rabbits probably isn't a problem. I was going to ask you whether you think, for example, we should just ban, you know, uh, non-desexed uh, cats and rabbits in Australia as as pets. But if if it took quite a lot of effort to get rabbits off in the in the first place then maybe having that individual pet rabbit over there if it escapes is not really so much of a problem i think cats are more of a problem than rabbits because um there's still a lot of stray cats there's still a lot of cats causing a lot of issues in urban areas as well so there's a big push in recent years to to get more urban biodiversity and 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 look after the biodiversity that's that's in people's backyards but it's very difficult to do that when you have free roaming cats and people that aren't keeping their cats mm-hmm. on their property. So we have quite a few councils in Australia now where you have to desex your cat, you have to microchip it, and you have to keep it on your property. Um, and they'll mm-hmm. they'll catch it and fine you if you don't do that. And I think that's a really great initiative. I think the other thing mm-hmm. when people uh, they have um, you know they're feeding stray cats. I think that that's just creating huge issues with. Uh, breeding mm-hmm. up animals, uh, you know, spreading out to the environment. But the cats in the arid zones, they're, they're living in the arid. They're not being supplemented by uh, town cats. I mean, we're talking about cats that are, you know, hundreds of kilometres away from a, from a city. They're, mm-hmm. they're just an established mm-hmm. population. They're a wild species now living comp- completely without human contact. You know, they don't need to drink. They're, they're very tough and... Um, yeah, they're just independent of human contact. But certainly in the fringes around around cities and particularly for that urban biodiversity, controlling cats and pet cats is a, is a, is a big issue. Mm-hmm. Do you think there's ever going to be a point where eradication, complete eradication does happen? Or, I mean, I'm asking this because I want to jump into your work where you're looking at fencing off areas and this sort of thing. But do, do you think there is a possibility there? Well, gene drive, I guess, is our biggest hope being able to do some sort of gene drive on these species. But I think even if you have the tools to do it, you've got to have the public uh, support to do it. And I think something like a a, a cat is obviously quite a contentious species. Uh, A lot of people feel very strongly about their pet cats and uh, we get quite a lot of hate mail and 
uh, every time we we get in the media about cat control or coming up with new methods of controlling cats, we invariably get a flood of emails from from cat lovers and you know. And I always tell people I'm a cat lover. I had pet cats as a, as a child. I, I like cats. Mm-hmm. Cats are amazing animals. They're incredibly beautiful and intelligent mm-hmm. and everything, but they don't they they shouldn't be in these areas and they shouldn't we shouldn't have cats at the expense of our native wildlife and i don't want to live in a world where we just have cockroaches and cats i want to live in a world where there's <laughs> you know huge diversity of of native species and they're all interacting and having their ecological effects on other species and their trophic cascades and all that sort of amazing stuff and so i as much as i don't like controlling cats and i don't enjoy doing that part of my job I think that you know we have to do it and it's easy to bury your head in the sand and say no no leave leave all the cats there and don't just leave them alone and don't do anything but that's basically saying you're happy for a bandicoot to go extinct or you're happy for a wallaby to go extinct Mm -hmm. and so at the end of the day we all have choices and I've made my choice. Mm-hmm. This is interesting because you've actually done the this what's it called this trolley problem where you have to decide which track the trolley yeah. goes down and do you, you know do you take it off the track that kills the one person and put it on or the four and put it onto the one and you you've made your choice essentially yeah well I think you when you are faced with problems in a practical sense it's very different to being faced with problems in a th- theoretical sense. And so when you're faced with a problem in front of you and you have to make a choice, then it forces you to make a choice. It's easy to sit back and, you know, say, oh, compassionate conservation, we shouldn't be harming any animal, every animal is sacred and things like that. But then when you're faced with a choice, I can just watch that cat kill that bilby and eat its pouch young in front of me Mm -hmm. or I can control that cat. Then you're effectively making a choice uh, by doing nothing or by doing Mm -hmm. something. So, yeah, Mm -hmm. I think we have to live with our choices i suppose also in terms of uh gene drives that's something that won't injure people's cats right this is this is this only affects the the next generation of cats is that the case how does how does that technology work yeah so the way they're doing it with the house mice is it makes it basically you have you end up with all male progeny so then you you know the the species Mm -hmm. dies out that sort of thing and i think you know there's some great experiments that are currently being done with looking at things like house mice and trying to eradicate them from islands and all that sort of thing. I think there are some things we have to be careful of. Um, For example, New Zealand has possums over there which are introduced from Australia Mm -hmm. and they cause huge huge issues. Uh So if they introduce a gene drive for possums in New Zealand and we happen to get possums to Australia, that could be, and we can't identify which possums have got this new gene technology and which ones don't Mm -hmm. it could be quite catastrophic so and same with cats you could argue the same with cats there's a lot of actual uh there's a scottish wild cat which is you know very similar genetically to to the 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 normal cat and we've got lots of african cats so you know what's going to be the damage to to cats in the in the wild where they're native you know that sort of thing so i think Mm -hmm. i think it's a great technology and i really hope we can do something with it but i think there's still a lot of bridges to cross to get there before we can embrace it. What about a cat Khaleesi virus? Is there anything <laughs> like this? Yeah, they looked, uh, that's they, on the cards? they looked at that. It was uh, there was a cat, a couple of uh, I think it's called the cat flu. It was uh, I can't remember exactly what the virus was, but there was a lot of research done into that. But uh, they, it, 
I think that they discarded that in the end as a, as a potential control tool for, for a number of reasons. I can't mm-hmm. exactly remember what they were. I think it wasn't virulent enough or it, or it was mm-hmm. going to have... Or the cats weren't social enough yeah, to warrant... Yeah, uh, that's perhaps. right. There was a few things like that. So, But they have looked into diseases like that. But, yeah, I mean, that would be ideal, wouldn't it? Inoculate all your pet yeah. cats and, and release it into the wild. Yeah. So let's jump into your actual research in these fenced off areas because that's what I sort of got my attention uh, to in the first place. So, so what are you doing there? How, how big are these areas and, and, and where, what's, what's, the, what's the research that you're doing there sort of in broad strokes? So it's, it's up at Aridacovery, which is a, a fenced area. We've got 123 square kilometres of fenced land and we've removed all the cats and foxes from there and we've put a whole lot of threatened species that used to be there back in. So we've got stick nest rats, western quolls, burrowing bettongs, greater bilbies, western bar bandicoots, all these kind of mammals that have disappeared from the system. And every time we tried to, so they would breed up inside that big fenced area and they, they do really well in there. We see them increasing in population size. And then we'd try releasing them outside the reserve and every single time they were eaten by cats and foxes. And this has happened all over Australia. I mean, we have a litany of failed reintroduction attempts in, in, in Australia. Mm-hmm. Most of our successful reintroductions are on islands or fence reserves where we've eradicated cats and foxes. So I guess we started thinking about not only do we need to improve our control methods for cats, but can we also improve our prey responses to cats? Because at the end of the day, if we can't get rid of cats from Australia, we need to come up with some way that they can coexist with native species. And there's you mm. know, ways you can do that. You can look after your habitat. So structurally complex habitat, which has got lots of understory and thick cover, is harder for cats to hunt. So that's always a, a good way to reduce your, your cat impacts. But we wanted to know whether we could do anything for the prey, whether we could improve their recognition of cats as a predator or their or their behaviour or, or something. So we started adding small numbers of cats to a population of bettongs and bilbies. And a bettong is like a small kangaroo. It's about the size, about 30 centimetres high. It's a very small kangaroo. It's only a couple of kilos. And a bilby is, is sort of a bandicoot. It's got a long nose, looks a bit like a rabbit, but it's, it's a marsupial. They're both marsupials. So we put them into one of our fenced areas, which is 24 square kilometres, so 2,400 hectares. So that's, that's a fairly large area. And we, we added a cat. And we we wait we waited, <laughs> and the cat didn't eat any of our bedongs or bilbies. It just ate the mice that were in the exclosure as well that were running around naturally. And we thought, oh, well, this is this is not not what we want. So we started adding more cats, and we we added more and more cats. So we we really wanted to test that population. We wanted to to push it so that we could accelerate natural selection for these anti-predator traits and so every year we would test the population have they changed are they physically the same are they meant you know behaviorally the same that kind of thing and we had a control population where we didn't have any cats in there it was another paddock that was just kept free of cats and it's now been going for about six years and we've really seen significant changes in that population both physically and behaviorally so for example their their feet are getting bigger which seems like a bizarre thing to happen, but they're getting bigger feet and there's actually selection for larger feet in that population, which could have something to do with their escape behaviour. It's, you know, they can escape quicker. might be something to do with just bigger animals are harder to kill. So a cat might struggle to take big animals. So definitely the smaller animals with the smaller feet are are 
are being selected against in that population. We're also seeing changes in behaviour. So they're a lot quicker to respond. Um, they're a lot more vigilant. And things like bilbies um, in particular uh, spend a lot more time hiding in cover than out in the open compared to the control animals. Mm-hmm. And, and after about three years, we, we took bilbies from that population and bilbies from the control population and we released them in with cats in a different compartment. And we had much higher survival of the bilbies that had been pre-exposed to cats after just three years. So I guess um, the results are really encouraging in one perspective. So we're, we're seeing changes and we think these are being brought, brought on by exposure to cats. The main thing is we're trying to show at the moment whether selection is actually happening. And we have got selection for some traits, so it's a larger feat. And that means if we can get selection for these traits, then it means over time we should see you know, even greater divergence in these in these traits and even mm-hmm. better anti-predator traits forming. And then at some point uh, in the future, it should be divergent enough that they can actually coexist to some ex- to a better extent with wow. cats. That's the that's the theory. Did, <laughs> but did you did you get a lot of pushback initially because you're taking an endangered species and you're giving it to a cat essentially? <laughs> I mean. Not 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 directly, but did you get a lot of people just saying like you, you shouldn't be doing this? It's it's crazy, or, or were people very supportive initially? I think um, I mean I think the push some of the pushback came back came from myself because I spent mm-hmm. ten years eradicating cats out of this area, and then I had to put a radio collar on a cat and put it back in, <laughs> and that was you know a really bizarre feeling adding a cat to a, a highly threatened and we talk about nationally threatened species that i mean the bedongs are only found mm-hmm. on three islands off the coast of western australia you know that's it they're extinct on the mainland so you know in some ways you're thinking what am i doing this is a little bit ridiculous but in other ways i think if we don't try these things we're never going to come up with with solutions and i'm not saying this is a solution but i'm saying we've got to keep trying and and be be prepared to take risks and and try something different and and really arid recovery from that perspective that's the organization that's supporting the trial was fantastic from that situation i think it would be would have been hard for a government organization to to do something like that but being a private conservation organization they were more willing to take to take those kind of risks so we did have a bit of pushback i mean I've been advocating to add predators to areas where there's threatened species. I don't think we should have areas of threatened species without some sort of predators, whether they're native predators or something, because animals lose their anti-predator behaviour very quickly. And um, mm-hmm. and then, you know, they're pretty useless after that. You're just going to have a, a fenced area with some really naive <laughs> animals. I mean, these these betongs at Arid Recovery, you could walk up to them and you could squat down and you could mm-hmm. put your hand out and they would hop up to you. I mean that's that's not the mm-hmm. behaviour you want in a wild population. That's not gonna. I see. That's not gonna be of any use. So you're actually generating a, a species that's not going to be resistant to any just the threats that are out that's there. That's right. Protect, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And some of that is because these species that were only left on islands, where the whole mainland populations went extinct. I mean, they've been isolated on islands for thousands of years. So the ones on the on the mainland mm-hmm. may well have been a lot more predator aware. They were still inundated with cats and foxes, so you know there's there's quite a long way to go for some of these species, but we're we're definitely seeing changes in the population and and people I think the thing people say to me is oh this might take a hundred years and I said well what are you doing for the next hundred years 
you know, okay, we could, it could, yeah. it might take a hundred years, but what's, what's the better solution at the moment? We don't have one. We should start now then perhaps. Exactly. Exactly. So, <laughs> I mean, what's interesting is that, is that the bilbies seem to learn a lot quicker than the betongs and, and the bilbies are still found on the mainland in some areas. They can coexist. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it may be that this, that this type of uh, experiment works better on, on certain species than others. And so we are looking mm-hmm. at different mm-hmm. species to see whether there are other species. And the other thing we're looking at is, well, if we use a native predator, like a western quoll or something, do we see the same learning over time? Like can we, rather than using cats and trying to get people to put cats back in with these threatened species, can we just encourage people to put native predators back you know, with these native species? And will, mm-hmm. that, will that still give them the tools to combat cats? Because there's a hypothesis... Uh, you know the multi-predator hypothesis, which which says that um, you know if you if you learn a response against one predator, then you should be able to have, maintain that response against a similar type of predator. So, if we can at least get them responding to native predators again, maybe that will also filter through to to feral cats. So that's one of the things we're testing at the moment because I think that's a more palatable um, request of people to put a native predator back in with their threatened species rather than necessarily a cat Hmm. i I guess the most painful part of this for you must be i mean when you're doing efficacy testing it sounds like you then also need to have a population that isn't acclimatized to predators and you're putting them to that must be a a bit painful for you no yeah and the the other thing that's really difficult is to work out what density of predators to use. So like I said before, we put one cat in there thinking this cat is going to be all we need. In the end, we needed 50 cats at one point. Mm. And then and then 50 cats was too many and then we had to take 30 of them out and then one was too many. It's it's not an exact science. So it was it's very difficult. But is this because is this because you, I mean, you mentioned, early, sorry for interrupting you, you mentioned earlier on that, um, you know, it was, it, it was individual cats, these big males that would get a taste for a certain species that were then having a huge impact. I mean, maybe it's the case that you put 50 cats in and none of them are of this uh, variety. That's right. But then you get, uh, is, is that causing that's the problem? That's definitely part of the issue. So that's part of the issue. The other part of the issue is what I was talking about before where we get these boom-bust cycles in the arid zone. So when conditions are booming up there, We've got lots of native rodents running around and the, and the cats. I was talking about these difficult prey for cats and bilbies and bedongs are both on that sort of threshold of difficult prey. And so when you've got good conditions, the, the cats are probably eating rodents. Well, we know they're eating rodents. They're eating a lot of native rodents mm-hmm. and things. And then all of a sudden it dries off and they're all turning around going, oh, there's no rodents left anymore. Now we're going to eat the bedongs and the bilbies. So you're constantly having to mm-hmm. take mm-hmm. cats out, add cats, and then you've got that issue of the size of the cats um, the bigger ones being more mm-hmm. likely to, to so and then when you do your test where you take them out and put them into a new environment you've got to decide well what's a good test five cats ten cats one cat and if you don't mm. put enough in so the first time we did it we had very low cat density and none of them died so um, the high survival in both groups which is great for the reintroduction but um, not actually testing your you know what you want to test so then we sort of up the cats and mm-hmm. then we we overcooked it. So it's, uh, and, you know, you've got to remember the whole time you're working with a threatened species. It's not like, mm-hmm. you, and, you know, you, you don't want to send animals. It's not a game. It's not a game. You don't want to send animals to your death. You, you're trying your hardest to, 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 to make something work and prove that it works, but you don't want to, not at the cost of 
you know, hundreds of threatened species. It's just not worth it. So I think there's been a lot of mental, not anguish, but, you know, introspection with all this of like how can we, is this actually working and how can we show it's working without actually mm. doing more damage? So, yeah, it's it's uh, it's quite a risky venture, but I do think that we are seeing uh, quite significant results from it. Yeah. It sounds like uh, in terms of just the science side of things, reproducibility then is is a huge issue that you you deal with in, in your research. Yeah, and I think I think that comes down to just us not understanding enough about prey-to-prey coexistence and, and the ratios of prey-to-prey coexistence because we have got that individual cat issue and because we've got that boom-bust issue. We can't just say if you reduce your cats to one per square kilometre, you will be able to reintroduce bilbies and betongs if we've primed them to to understand, you know, what a cat predator is. It, it's just not that simple. So it's always going to be complex. It's going to depend on the rainfall. It's going to depend on the habitat type, the type of cats you have. So, yeah, it's not an easy, it's not an easy recipe to come up with and to test. But we do know a lot already about cats and how they hunt and, and the fact that structural complexity in the environment helps reduce their their hunting ability and we know a lot about control methods and, mm-hmm. and all. so we can put the whole thing together but it's it's going to be uh not one size fits all and it's not going to be one technique we're going to have to there's no silver bullet in this when you mean structural complexity you mean you know if you break up the landscape with fencing that uh, negatively impacts the cats, uh, whereas it doesn't Im- impact the native species. What, what do you mean there by structural complexity? I just mean more cover at a ground level, so it's it's easier for so so when you have areas that are with thick undergrowth and thick understory, it's a lot easier for the native animals to mm-hmm. hide, and it's a lot harder for cats to hunt them. I see, I see. And you know, cats are sort of stalking predators, so they they rely on seeing the prey and then stalking it and pouncing on it. So it's a lot harder to do that in a in an environment where there's lots of understory and lots of cover and I see. that sort of thing. I see. So um, particularly in arid areas that are quite open, if you can maintain some of that structure and complexity in the habitat, then it it, it will really help reduce that cover that that cat predation effects as well. Mm. And and so uh, in terms of the actual fencing, how do you design these things so they can stop cats? So they, I mean, d- obviously they don't burrow, but uh, they can climb quite well, right? So we we started off with a fence design that we thought was cat proof, and we we tested it. We we mm-hmm. built a pen, and it was about twenty meters by twenty meters, and we caught a feral cat, and we obviously built the pen inside out, so the the fence was facing inwards. And we put a cat, yeah. we put a cat in there, a feral cat, and uh, it got out in twenty five seconds. And okay, big failure. So we, we, we were like, <laughs> "This is not a cat proof fence." So then we just went back to the drawing board and we and we tried a whole lot of different electric wires and different placements, and we tried a, a floppy top, which is like a curved overhang of different lengths, and we tried different mm-hmm. height fences, and we came up with a fence that kept in. I think without the electric wires, about 98% of cats and with the electric wires, you know, almost 100%. So that was the fence wow. that we that we then used. And we, we published that study and a lot of people have used that fence design since then. Um, but, you know, a fence is only as good as its weakest point. So you can have the best fence in the world, but you have 
a, a corner of your gate that's not quite right and that's where the cat's going to get in. The cats are pretty clever at finding weak points and fences. I see. But uh, so is there... Um... So in the, so you, you've had great success though in in reintroductions in these uh, protected areas. So where where you have do you have any failures? Uh, is it is there any case cases where despite having all this protection, animals just don't take? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But but they're much rarer. If you can fence an area and remove the cats and foxes, you've got a really high chance of, of success in a reintroduction. And that's been shown now on multiple sites across Australia. But, I mean, we tried numbats, which is a, a little animal that mm -hmm. looks a little bit like a squirrel um, and it only eats termites and it's diurnal and uh, they were taken by birds of prey, so from native predators. Oh. Um, so that was unfortunate, but again, I guess you can't fence those out. No, you can't do much about them. Um, and we also tried uh, warmer pythons, which are uh, quite yeah. rare in that area. It's a, it's a native python snake, and they were actually eaten by native snakes. So uh, oh. again, a, a native predator got them. So yeah, we've had we've had. But were some... they not uh, were they not from that area originally? Why why were they susceptible to, to predation well, from native species? They were captive bred snakes, so that probably didn't help um and they haven't been back in that area for a long time so we don't know if the snake if the other native snakes species in the area had bred up to sort of take over that niche and there was just high density of, of those snakes we're not really sure but we think if they had been wild juveniles it would have it probably would have worked a lot better but um that's just all we had available at the time so the fence designs that you have uh, in play, is this something you could um, essentially, is this something you could upscale? Are they, uh, are they, is it just a simple fence or you mentioned electrifying these fences? Is, is, is this something you have a plan of gradually expanding uh, and making larger and larger fenced off areas or what's the status there? Well, that, some organizations are doing that. So the Australian Wildlife Conservancy has got a plan to build one that's, you know, I can't remember the exact size, but it's hundreds of square kilometres uh, up near Alice Springs mm -hmm. at their New Haven release. The one at Arrow Recovery is, uh, you know, uh, 113 square kilometres, something like 35 or more kilometres of fence line. And you do get to a point where uh, it's just it's just hard to keep keep on top of it. You know, you've got to maintain the fence. You've got mm -hmm. to check the fence. If you get an incursion, if an animal gets in, you've got to be able to find it and get it out. And once you get to a certain size, that becomes very difficult to do. So there is sort of, there's an economy of scale in terms of getting big enough so you can have decent sized populations of threatened species. So you get that genetic diversity maintained and sustainable populations. And then it starts to decline when it gets too big and you just can't maintain it and remove incursions and check it you know, efficiently without a lot of money. But there's, I mean, we've got fence reserves in Australia. I can't remember how many we have now, but it would be over 30. And they range in size from, you know, just a, a, maybe 100 hectares all the way up to, you know, 4,000, 8,000 hectares. So um, there's certainly a big variation in size. And, and But they're very expensive as well. I mean, you think about it, it might be $25,000 a kilometre to build and erect mm -hmm. one of these fences. They've, and then on top of that, the, the netting will rust out after 20 years and you've got to replace it. Like it's it's not really a long-term viable option for threatened species conservation. It's a, it's a short-term insurance population and it's a great education tool. People can come to these areas and they can see. I mean, people haven't heard of a Western mm -hmm. quoll. 
when I first told people I was mm-hmm. reintroducing quolls, they thought I meant quail, and I said, "Won't they fly away?" And uh, uh, you know, a quoll is a is a carnivorous marsupial. It's it's not a bird. Mm. Um, so they're really good from that perspective, and great places to do research and and try and improve, you know, our reintroduction success and things like that. So they certainly got their place. So well, maybe so rather than a, a full fence, you know, when you, you do shark nets, you just you, you look at specific areas of sharks coming through. You don't fence off the entire beach. Could you combine your cat sentinel together with fencing? You know, you direct, I, I imagine if they see an open opening in the fence, they're more likely to go through there than try to climb over. Could you combine some really cheap fencing uh, with the sentinel in, in funnel regions or something like this that's sort of an, an effective um, and cost-effective uh, method that can upscale? Yeah, and that's, and that's people looking at that sort of yeah. That's what we're trying to look at at the moment. So there's a couple of ways of doing that. One is in those spinifex areas where they're prone to burning. You can actually burn mm-hmm. lines through that through that country, and you can put things like baits mm-hmm. or traps or Felix the grooming traps in those areas. And when an animal hits that area, it'll walk along it because it's a nice open open area. Mm-hmm. The other thing is you can put those shorter fences in the environment or you can use existing stock fences or existing fences that are in the environment for that as well. So that's certainly um, being looked at and I think there's a lot of lot of work being done as well into integrated control. So sure, try your aerial mm-hmm. baiting, also stick your Felix the traps out, you know, do some do some fencing so you've got some core populations that are protected and you know, see if that all will work together. So there's a lot of people looking at those, what we call the beyond the fence strategies. Um, Mm -hmm. Not many examples of them working well yet. I think there's probably one in Western Australia that I'd say is is doing well at at, um, Marawa Sanctuary there. But yeah, difficult, very difficult um, to do on a broad scale. That doesn't mean we won't get there and and I think that hopefully we will eventually, with this combination of techniques, I don't think it will be one technique, it will be a combination. Even with the baiting, they're finding they still have to go and do trapping for cats on top of the baiting. And you still have to have a little fenced area as a, as a core refuge for some individuals. So there's you know, compromises that we have to make. Can you design your fence-off areas so that they you can have native species coming in and out, but the cats are unable or, or unable to come in and out? Is is are there technologies like that? Yeah, so that's all about trying to create what we call halos. So that's having a fence reserve mm-hmm. and then having a halo around it where you have animals in you know higher abundance and they gradually decline as you go further mm-hmm. out from the fence, and and they're maintained from animals that breed up inside and move out. But a lot of the studies that have been done have actually failed to show halo effects exist. Um, there's been a couple of studies in New I Zealand see. for birds where they have shown that birds have flown out over outside the fenced areas and created mm-hmm. a bit of a halo. Um, but very few fenced areas in Australia, if any, have been able to demonstrate effective halos. And I think part mm-hmm. of that is just not being out of control cats and foxes in an, like enough to allow those animals to survive outside. I mean, for what, for example, we looked at arid recovery at our halos and we had a halo only for two rodent species and they only extended, mm-hmm. I think one was only 200 metres outside the fence and the other one might have mm-hmm. got to a kilometre if we were lucky. But, yeah, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's just those predator numbers are still too high in most areas to, to allow those halos to form. 
But th that might create an environment where you have uh, exposure in a controlled manner uh, to, to predator species. I mean, halos might, these, these protected regions where species are able to run out uh, might provide exactly the sort of experiment that you're, that you're doing. Uh, is that's that not the, the theory. case? That, that, that would be, that's what we, I guess, what we attempted first up to do to try and release mm -hmm. these animals outside. We had, we've designed one-way gates that allow animals out but not in, so you get dispersing animals that will move out, and they're really effective. They work really well. Uh, mm. in one, at one time, we had 6,000 betongs inside our recovery, and we were able to get wow. 1,500 to leave through these one-way gates. Um, but not a single one of them survived outside the fence. Oh. <laughs> so, um, you know, we, we've got the tools to let the animals out. We're just still struggling mm. with the tools to, to keep that. Po like, as you really correctly pointed out, if we could keep those populations even at low density outside the fence, that's creating that, that learning environment that we talked about. But it's just mm. been so difficult to sustain I that. Uh, over long periods so people might it might mm. work for a few months or 18 months i think some people have managed to keep them going for but over longer periods it's been very difficult like i said there are a few examples but in general it's 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 very difficult to do that this That's is such an enormous job <laughs> you have such an <laughs> enormous job to do <laughs> i like your thinking though i mean it, it's great to have discussions with people that are interested in this sort of thing because always looking for new ideas and always trying, wanting to try different things because if we don't, we're just going to end up with little fenced zoos and, you know, our children will grow up not knowing what these animals are or ever seeing them or interacting with them and the environment will lose those really important ecosystem engineers and, and all the services they provide to the ecosystem. So it's a big job but it's definitely a job you know, worth persevering with. Hmm. So what's the, maybe a good thing to wrap up on would be to discuss, you know, what, what's the, when you're looking towards the future, what's the, um, the dream scenario? If, if, if I dropped a bunch of funding on you <laughs> and you were able to, you know, what's, what's, the, what's the dream scenario where I drop the funding on and what's the realistic scenario that we're actually going to uh, be seeing, do you think, in the next 50 or so years? Yeah, I think, I think there's a couple of things. One is more connectivity of habitat. So the Arizona in some ways is lucky because it hasn't been extensively like fully cleared. So we've still got a continuous area of habitat there, but ensuring that that habitat, there's enough areas in good condition. So we do have that continuity of, of good habitat so that during droughts, things can persist in the landscape and don't just sort of, you know, twink out because, because they can't carry on there. And in, in those um, agricultural landscapes where we've cleared a lot of land, trying to get, those ha that habitat back so fragmentation i think reversing fragmentation uh is is going to be really critical to try and get these species back into those environments if we can just get over that threshold where we can get that habitat in really good condition we can manage the structural complexity of it we can increase the vegetation area that's covered we might just be able to you know reverse some of these declines in that way without actually having to do you know much else and it's also going to offset climate change if we can plant a hell of a lot of trees to and, and get trees growing again without being impacted by cattle and sheep. And and I guess one of my other things I'm really interested in is trying to demonstrate that 
you can graze, you can have productive land that you use for a productive purpose. So in Australia, in our arid lands, a lot of it is used for grazing for cattle and sheep. And we tend to see conservation organisations buy those pastoral stations and turn them into national parks. And so we have we have pastoral stations that are really heavily grazed and then we have little areas next to them that are conserved. And that postage stamp effect is really difficult in a landscape that has a boom and bust kind of trajectory. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. trying to get more sustainable agriculture happening across the landscape, I think. I'd love to be able to buy a pastoral station and graze it sustainably and still have threatened species thriving on it and still create an income and and produce um, beef or or lamb or whatever from it are there examples of that happening um not many that i can think of i think it's it's turning into a either or situation which is i think not a great future for our arid zone i think I'd, i'd like to see a lot more integration of that um so that the whole area can can support industry and conservation at the same time. So that's a bit of a dream. We'll see. We'll see what happens. Okay. So that so that's the dream: connecting, uh, making uh, greater connectivity between the environments that still exist. What what's the reality? Where 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 are we headed? Do you think um, with the funding and with 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 uh, with what's being done currently? I think we're heading towards more islands and fenced areas and a stronger focus on that because we're losing the battle in the broader landscape. And I think I think we'll end up with a lot of small sanctuaries where we, we keep our threatened species safe um, and they're going to really struggle to get, to get back into that landscape scale uh, areas that they really need to have sustainable populations and things so yeah and i think climate change will probably finish a lot of things off as well so it's a bit depressing really isn't it i should just go and get a job in a bakery or something no no no, don't do that we need you to keep (laughs) (laughs) although that would be a pleasant job i i do find that ecologists tend to be very pessimistic though so hopefully i'm i'm proven wrong and and we will see you know reversal of a lot of these things there's certainly a lot of people very dedicated to making sure it happens so Hopefully, uh, we can get there. But also, I suppose there must be some aspects of your job that are just absolutely pleasant, right? You, you, you can uh, you're interacting with these species that you love interacting with. There's that side of things, also. Yeah, I think I get my the most pleasure not actually from catching or handling the animals, or but just walking around in an environment where they're there and seeing their foraging digs and seeing some seeds that have fallen in there and that have sprouted up and seeing a, a seedling that's come up because something's dug a, a dug a, buried a seed there or seeing their tracks on the sand and you can see where they've dug up some termites or just sort of seeing the whole environment as it should be and in a, as a healthy environment that can sustain droughts and, you know, sustain populations. I think that's where I get my, my greatest pleasure. I, I I turned that uh, negative thing into a positive uh, ending for us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, it was getting a bit uh, yeah, negative there, wasn't it? No, but it's 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 fine. I I, I think that's a great place to wrap wrap up, uh, Catherine. But you know, it, it's been absolutely fascinating um, speaking with you. This is this has been great. I I really appreciate uh, your time. Yeah, and for someone who's not in this field, you you've got some great 
uh, understanding of the issues and some great questions. So it was it was really great to talk to you. Hmm. Would you have time for me to ask just some? So I've got one or two sort of side related questions while I've got you here. Could I? Do you, do you mind if yeah, I ask sure. you a couple of stuff out of? No, no, that's it's fine. sort of out of field. I'm I'm wondering what your thoughts are on uh, de extinction. Oh, there's a big there's a big uh, question. Yeah, I was thinking about this the other day when I was reading something about. Oh God, I can't remember what species it was, but they, oh, I think it was the, I can't remember, it was one threatened species where they'd managed to increase the genetic diversity of it by... The black-footed ferret. Was it the black-footed ferret? Yes, I was reading about that. And I found that really fascinating because I thought, you know, when you first mentioned de-extinction and people think mammoths and all this sort of stuff and everyone freaks out about it. But, you know, when you use it in that setting to to save a an extant species, I think that's, that's a pretty amazing thing to be able to do. Bringing back completely extinct species, I mean, I if it could be done with you know so that we don't lose focus on what we currently have, I think that the mm-hmm. the risk is that we then put all our focus into thylacines. Let's bring back the thylacine, which is you know the Tasmanian tiger mm-hmm. um, in Australia. But at the same time, you know the Tasmanian devil's going extinct or something like that. Mm-hmm. I think if if we if we had enough resources so that we could protect what we already got, then bringing back other key species that had a really important role in the environment would be great. But I just worry that that the focus will shift and the funding will shift to species that are already gone when we've got so many species that are still just hanging on. The reason why I wanted to ask you this specifically is because you know, you're dealing with reintroduction of species that have been not in areas for a long period of time. And I'm wondering if you have done reintroductions that just completely collapse and fail because there's a keystone species missing. So for for example, you know, you, you reintroduce, I don't know, a bandicoot or, or something somewhere and it really relied on having some mouse or some bird that no longer exists. Are you seeing uh, those sort of effects happening? Well, most of the reintroduction failure in Australia is is predation by cats and foxes. So we don't often <laughs> okay. get, to, get, get to the stage where other issues suddenly become apparent. But I think that's it's a distinct possibility. And I'm sure if I thought hard enough, I could come up with some examples where that exact thing where you would, you would need to. I mean, you look at the, I guess, the, the lynx reintroductions they're trying to do in Spain where they mm-hmm. struggle because their primary prey, which is the rabbit, you know, has been decimated by Khaleesi virus and, and hunted and all that sort of thing. And so they're, they're often they'll starve because they don't have enough prey. So in that situation, you really want to be reintroducing the prey and the predator, you know, or getting those prey populations mm-hmm. established first. So I can see where you're going in terms of de-extinction if you, could, if you could choose species that actually help facilitate the current species that are already extant and might improve their chances. I think, yeah, there would be a really strong case for that. I think it's one of those things that it's all a case by case basis, isn't it? That it, mm-hmm. it's like all of that gene technologies now, we're all and CRISPR. I mean, we're all happy to mm-hmm. to try and fix genes for people that have genetic um, diseases, but then uh, we're much less comfortable to change people's eye color and and fiddle mm-hmm. with uh, you know other characteristics like intelligence and physical traits and, and things like that. So, I think in the future these these moral discussions are going to become quite robust and it'll be interesting to see where it ends up. Yeah. 
I, I guess you have to think strategically about where you put your resources. And, and when, when that's the case in, in, in the real world, maybe this is not where you'd put your resources. But if, if you did have unlimited funding, again, maybe this is something that would get you really excited. You know, we can, maybe we can bring back the thylacine. Maybe we can bring back uh, uh, even more exotic species that, that maybe I've not heard of. Um, I, I don't know. I, I think it's also a, a topic that gets people interested. So, so maybe you, you'd have this back reaction effect where once, once you can bring back these keystone species, um, you, you suddenly see more funding coming in and public interest and that sort of thing. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure. What, what, what's, what's your feeling yeah, on the, a, the social that's, dynamics? That's a possibility. I mean, I think that to, the, the point you brought up before where you said that um, you know, the environments might not still be the same when those species were there. That's a very good point as well. Like, you know, we're trying to bring things back that have might have been extinct for 5,000 years or 1,000 years or 500 years and mm-hmm. everyone's moved on, everything's changed and those species that used to rely on that prey have gone extinct as well. And it's it's really difficult trying to work out, you know, in which cases it would be suitable and which ones it wouldn't be suitable. So... But I mean, there is, I, I see quite a lot of interest in de-extinction and, and people putting up pros and, and cons and all that, that sort of stuff. And if you did have unlimited money, I think it would make some really interesting experiments. Like I think you could really delve <laughs> into, into some really interesting experiments there. But yeah, I don't think we're a conservation movement's ever going to have enough money to, to say, just go and try some things like that. You know, we just, mm-hmm. we're, we're, too under the pump, I think, with other things. 